Actually, you didn't leave me your notes, so I've got nothing. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Uh, really good to see you tonight. Uh, I am really excited this evening because uh, later on tonight, I am going to move into a new part of my American experience because I'm going to go and see the Colorado Eagles ice hockey. I have never been to uh, see ice hockey before. I've been briefed about it. Pastor Darry told me it's a very gentle, gracious sport. <laughs> and so I'm looking forward to that, that experience. I, I, when I go to this stuff, I don't know what's going on. I, I've told you before, I don't watch the game. I watch the crowd. And I just do what they do. If they cheer, I cheer. If they clap, I clap. If they cuss, I pray. So... Uh, <laughs> Well, we are continuing this little two-part series this week, How Not to Pray. How many of you were here last weekend? Raise your hand. That's good. And uh, we're looking at How Not to Pray, part two, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter six again, um, verse five, and then verses nine through 13. So let's jump right in and have a look at Matthew six, as we think tonight about uh, prayer and how Jesus teaches us to pray. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And then verse 9 says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, just thinking about and reflecting on this subject of prayer this week, uh, you may have already done this. I, I got on the internet and I discovered uh, some real prayers that children have prayed. And uh, I, I'm always uh, delighted and amused when I read some of these prayers. Here, here are some of them. Uh, this was from Joyce. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I asked for was a puppy. <laughs> I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. Amen. <laughs> I like that. Uh, here's another one. Dear God, is it true my father won't get into heaven if he uses his golf words in the house? That was a neater. Uh, here's Peter. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different summer camp this year. <laughs> this is Donnie. Dear God, is Reverend Coe a friend of yours or do you just know him through the business? <laughs> That's cute, isn't it? And here's Nancy. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. It's all kind of cute, isn't it? But you know, the more I've been reflecting on the subject of prayer, the more I think we need the simplicity of children rather than the complexity that sometimes adults can bring to this subject. So if you're following along in the bulletin, let's identify a few more myths. Let's make it clear that these statements in your bulletin, they are not truths, they are myths. Otherwise, you'll go away from Timberline tonight with the exact opposite of what uh, I'm trying to say through this message. Identifying some more myths, as Jesus says there in verse 5, do not be like 
the hypocrites. The first myth, the first myth that I want us to uncover and expose tonight is this idea that somehow spirituality, vague spirituality, is all that matters. That spirituality is all that matters. We'll bring that heading up for you. As Jesus says this statement in verse 9, hallowed be your name. Being spiritual is not enough. Um, There are some things that I never thought would ever come back into fashion. Does anyone here remember the 70s? Does anyone remember the fashions of the 70s? Whoever thought that flared pants would ever come back? Thoroughly evil things. (laughs) Platform heels. Whoever thought they would come back. And, you know, I'm wearing my cowboy boots again tonight. When I go back to England, they think that I'm a fashion guru when I wear these. Especially when I wear them in the summer with my shorts. That is particularly, (laughs) particularly attractive. You know what's back in fashion? Spirituality is back in fashion. It's kind of cool to be spiritual these days. Everything has changed. When I... When I became a Christian 33 years ago at the age of four, I remember back then that you didn't talk about spirituality. Back in Europe, to use the technical terminology, if you're interested, we were still living in post-enlightenment, post-Renaissance rationalism and humanism where everything was to be explained by science. And I remember as a brand new Christian with a big Jesus badge on my coat. I remember that it was awkward, it was uncomfortable to talk about spirituality because he would induce spirituality. It was all about the rational world that you could see. Now everything has changed. We're now living in what the sociologists describe as a postmodern culture. There is no central story. There is no core meta-narrative, no big picture that undergirds the way that we do life. Now That's really bad and it's really good. It's really bad because there's moral chaos as a result. Whenever a culture loses connection with its core story, then chaos reigns. But there's something really good about it too because it means that suddenly spirituality is back on the agenda. Suddenly it's okay to have a conversation and we should welcome that opportunity not just to nuke people with our Christianity, but to have a dialogue, a conversation with them as they journey. But I want to say this at the risk of making someone mad. There's always a risk of that. And that is, in a culture where tolerance is king, and where we can get into this idea that spirituality alone is cool, Jesus drives a truck through that idea and makes some very exclusive claims about himself as he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, Jesus doesn't say as he teaches us how to pray, just get a little dab of spirituality. But he says, pray, our Father, hallowed be your name. Now, What's that about? This word hallowed, it's probably not a familiar word to us in our everyday vocabulary. In fact, the closest that we use it, ironically, is actually on Halloween. Because at Halloween, that is founded in the old All Saints Day or the Holy Evening, the 
hallowed evening, if you will, of that uh, particular festival. What is Jesus saying then when he's asking us to pray that God's name will be considered holy? Surely God's name is holy, therefore us praying about it doesn't make any difference. We need to understand that in Jesus' day there was a lot in a name. That's why the New Testament talks about people who are being healed and delivered in Jesus' name. Because invested in a name was a reputation. Invested in a name was character. And so, as Jesus points us back to the God who says, I am holy, and reveals himself in the in the Exodus story to Israel as the holy God, he is pointing us to the God who said, away with your idols, away with your false religion, I am the God who is unique, there is no other apart from me. As we, are, as we pray, may your name be hallowed, we are recognizing the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And as I've already said, Jesus makes it clear that he is the only way. When you think about it, that's consistent because we don't live in a relativist world. We live in a world where you're either, actually you're either right when it comes to directions or you're wrong. I got lost again this week. It's one of my hobbies. Uh, It is particularly sad because I was operating with two GPS systems and a wife. I've got a GPS system in my car, and it's got a demonized lady in there. And, and then Kay has got a GPS system on her iPhone. And, uh, and I was in Flatirons, and we had a lunch appointment in Denver. And uh, Kay said to me, this is the, we've got 15 minutes to get to Denver. And she said, I know, Jeff, that you always drive below the speed limit. So this... So... This is the route to take. And the the demonized lady in the GPS said that. And the iPhone said that. And I knew better. I knew better. So I took that toll road that brings us back towards Fort Collins. Or up towards Fort Collins. I don't know my north from my south. You see my problem, people? And we were 35 minutes late for our lunch appointment. But it was absolutely no good saying, you know what, this toll road, which is the wrong road, is right for me. If it's right for me, it's right for me. It wasn't right for me. It wasn't right for anybody. It was wrong, honey. You know, we're living in a culture that says, well, bless your heart. You know, whatever you want to worship, if you want to begin every day by standing on your head in your bathroom, stark naked, Meditating on an Ecuadorian fruit bat by the name of Doris the Winged One. <laughs> Where does this stuff come from? <laughs> then that's if it works for you. But Jesus says, I'm the way. C.S. Lewis was right. He's either the son of God or he's crazy. Lock him up. Spirituality is not enough. Your name is holy. You are the unique one. That doesn't mean we need to go out there and slap people. Say, well, bless God if you just knew what I know. 
It does mean that we need to be gracious and engage in a conversation. But spirituality is not all that matters. We need the right spirituality. The second myth is that somehow everything is inevitable. Everything is inevitable. Your kingdom come, Jesus tells us to pray. Let me ask you a really honest question. Have you ever, like me, have you ever thought, what's the point of praying anyway? You ever thought that? Because I've occasionally thought, well, well, you know, like God knows anyway. In fact, Jesus concedes that point. He says in Matthew 6, in this very chapter, verse 8, do not be like them. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So my immediate response to that is, well, if you know, why do I bother to tell you? And then there are some people who take the view that everything that happens is inevitable anyway. In fact, I I read one theologian. He says, if it happened, it must have been God's will. Hello? That's kind of K-sarah-sarah fatalism. I disagree with that idea. First of all, let's make it clear. God doesn't always get his will done. God doesn't always get his will done. That's why we're told to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because he doesn't always get his will done. Free will means that there is an allowance in the universe for things that God does not want. If you, if you struggle with that, and I'm going to phrase this carefully because of children present, If you struggle with that, do you think it's God's will that little children in India of two years of age and little babies are in cages right now just waiting for predators to stop by on their way home from work? And I'm sorry about the extremity and the offensiveness of the illustration, but I'm sorry if we believe that everything that happens is God's will, we better apply it to these extremities. No, not everything that happens is God's will perfect will. Secondly, God has called us into partnership with him. That's why we are invited to pray. Now stop right there. Because I've seen the guy on TV who says, whatever you want, just tell God and he's going to give it to you. I'm sorry, switch off the TV when the man says that. They've even got verses for it. Concerning the works of my hands, command me, says the Lord. The only thing is, when you build a theology on one verse, you get yourself into trouble. God is not a vending machine, brothers and sisters. And there are times when we ask, and you know what he says like a good dad? He says, no. Matthew 20, Salome came with James and John to Jesus and she said, can I have some nice thrones for my boys? And he said, no. God is not a vending machine. But God has called us into partnership and relationship with him. He doesn't always get his will done. He wants his church to be a praying people. Thirdly, we can affect God and we can affect circumstances. In fact, I want to go so far as to say it is my conviction based on my understanding of scripture that there are times when something is set and we can go to God in prayer and we can change it. If you doubt that, have a look at Exodus 32 as Moses pleads with God on behalf of Israel who were worshipping a golden calf and God was ready to nuke them. And Moses intercedes and the Bible says that God relented. He changed his mind. Hezekiah, Isaiah chapter 20 is a, is a, similar, uh, a similar episode. 
So, so for every episode, you know what, folks, you can almost get excited about this. There is an opportunity to potentially, as junior partners with God, shape and change history. That gets me a little excited. That makes me want to nip out for a crafty prey. And fourthly, we are told as well what we should pray for because Jesus says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus constantly talked about the kingdom. It was his main theme of his message. Matthew's gospel, it's mentioned 32 times. When we pray, your kingdom come, are we saying, Jesus, please come back quick? No. The kingdom of God is the sphere of the rule and reign of God. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we are saying, God, in India, where little children are under threat. Lord, around the world where there is poverty and next week we take action in terms of one day to change the world. God, will your kingship, your rule, your reign, will you establish that in these situations where there is chaos? And so... Prayer becomes an exciting opportunity. It is a myth to say everything is inevitable. Can I just stop for a moment? What have you decided? What have you decided in the horizons of your life can never change? What have we said? You know what? I believe in God, but even God can't do that. We're wrong. We're wrong. And the call to prayer shows us that we're wrong. The third myth is that our spiritual life, our spiritual life alone is what matters. Uh, Jesus told us to pray about our daily bread. You know, some early commentators on the Lord's Prayer, they really struggled with the idea that when Jesus talked about daily bread, he was talking about daily bread. They tried to spiritualize it. Uh, people like uh, early church fathers like Tertullian and Cyprian and Augustine taught that Jesus wasn't talking about bread, but he was talking about the bread of the word of God. Uh, Jerome taught that daily bread was a reference to the sacrament of communion. Thankfully, the Reformation brought a more down-to-earth view. Uh, Calvin argued that the spiritualizing of daily bread was... I quote, exceedingly absurd. What's all this got to do with us? It means if we're not careful, we can chop our lives up into spiritual and secular blocks. And we think that God is really interested in us when we're worshipping and singing a hymn and praying. But he's not interested in us when we're out playing golf. In fact, I heard a pastor once make an announcement from the pulpit. He said, I know it's not very spiritual, but we've got a golf tournament this week. Well, what do you mean it's not very spiritual? Does that mean it's unspiritual? I mean, I, I don't have any vested interest here. You know, I've told you, I'm not a golfer. I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. It is absolutely hideous. But there's a danger that we come to believe that God is interested in, in the religious stuff but our daily bread, our work, we even chop that up. We talk about being in Christian work or secular work. You know what that can mean? It means that we pray for the Sunday school teachers, but we don't pray for the high school teachers who are laboring in the trenches 60 hours a week and need our prayers and are serving God 
even as they do so. God is interested in all of our lives. So that means your business too. You ever heard Christians say, well, business is business. What that's doing is it's chopping up part of our lives again into compartments. When we are taught to pray, give us today our daily bread. That's because God wants us to talk to him about all of our ordinary stuff. And that we can come and ask. I touched on this last week. I'm challenged at the moment in my life to ask more. And my human conditioning says you're not supposed to ask. Have you noticed that about adults? I, I talked to my grandson today. I'm sorry to talk about him. But it's, and it's probably not relevant to the message. But let me just talk about him for a, a moment or two. I talked to him on Skype. How many know what Skype is? It, it, it's, it's the most marvelous thing. Because it means my grandson is 5,300 miles away, but he thinks I'm granddad in a box. He thinks I'm like a muck granddad, you know, one in a box. And, I, and I, I talk to him, and he gurgles back, and I know he's speaking Greek or Latin. Or he's a very clever kid, you know. But you know what I notice about little babies and children? They're not worried about putting their hand out. You know, they... When my kids were growing up, if I gave him a candy bar, my son, he wouldn't say, Dad, I'm not sure I'm worthy of this. <laughs> I mean, parental unit, I have not cleaned my room since birth, so I am not worthy. But isn't that what happens when we get to be adult and sophisticated? Give someone a gift when it's not their birthday or Christmas and watch them squirm. Oh, you shouldn't have. I didn't bring you anything. And we are conditioned to not accept and not ask. I love the phrase that John Newton, the converted slave trader, who became a hymn writer and a, a pastor, and he talked about large asking, about coming to God with all of our lives, all of our stuff, and being bold enough to ask him to Intervene. Can I, can I ask this question of myself and of you? Is there an area of your life that you have never ever prayed about? Because you didn't think God was interested in that area. What area have we never brought to God? The fourth myth is this idea that I can somehow love God. You ever met Christians like this? They say, I love God, I just can't stand people. Has anyone ever met people like that? Is anyone sitting next to someone like, no, don't respond. Because as Jesus says, forgive us as we also have been forgiven, we are, we are shown here that being forgiven and being forgiving are utterly connected. I'll say that again because the old speech impediment might not be helping us. Being forgiven and being forgiving are totally connected. I've told you over the years here at Timberline, um, particularly as I travel around, people say the weirdest stuff to me after I've preached. And don't sit there right now and say, I've got one for you tonight, son, please. I've told you before a lady came up to me, she asked me if I'd ever had a stroke after I'd preached. <laughs> don't you think that's rude? She said, excuse me. She said, she said, some of you are thinking, I'm thinking the same thing. 
She said, have you ever had a stroke? I said, no, why do you ask? She said, well, when you smile, only one side of your face goes up. I was tempted. I wanted to say, I'm seriously ugly, honey. What's your excuse? But I did not say that. Wrong, so wrong. A Dutch lady came up to me. A Dutch lady. It's absolutely true. Just a couple of months ago. She said, in Holland, we say what we think. If we think you're ugly, we say you're ugly. So I said, well, no one's ever said anything like that to me. And she said, so, you haven't been to Holland then? A gentleman came up to me once. I don't know why he said this to me. He said, I don't suffer fools gladly. You know what I wanted to say? I'm glad God does. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful truth that I, I've just been beginning to think about it and reflect on it. We talk about God's compassion and mercy. James 5.11 talks about the Lord being full of compassion and mercy. And one translation of that word mercy is the word pity. God shows us pity. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you live in harmony with each other. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate. Another translation, show pity and be humble. Get, get this, everybody. We are pitiful. When we ask for forgiveness, we're not big, strong human beings who are saying, hey, God, give me a break. I just messed up this one time. No, no. That's, that's a false anthropology. God looks at us and compared to his wholeness, we are pitiful. And he shows us pity. How then can those who have been shown pity despise others? Of course, our stance is that we are forgiven and therefore we ask God to help us to forgive others. In fact, I often meet people, they say they're really enlightened Christians. You know what John's definition of enlightenment is in 1 John? Listen to this. Whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. You see, John is saying to us here, enlightenment is not about having lots of information about God, but enlightenment is expressed in relationships and character. We've been shown pity. Now, I need to be careful about this because I've been in those services where the preacher said, you know, if there's someone you need to forgive, just go ahead and forgive them right now. Can I just say, I want you to really hear this. God does want us to forgive, but that might take a journey. And it worries me at times, my brothers and sisters, and here's the pastoral heart again. When a, a person has been abused and then suddenly the preacher stands up and makes it all sound so easy and says just forgive that guy like it's some instant thing that you do it might be that what we should appeal for is for that person to say Lord take me on a journey whereby I will be able to forgive the commentators make the point 
This is not us making a statement, I'm going to forgive. This is us bringing the need to be able to forgive into our prayer life. And if you're sitting there right now thinking, you know what, Lucas, I could never forgive that guy. Thank you for your honesty. What I am asking you to do is turn in God's direction and cry out to him for his help that you might be able to go on a journey. I say that, by the way, primarily for your, for your sake, because the first person to be blessed in forgiving is the forgiver. And there's a connection as we are forgiven, as we are shown pity, so we forgive. Is there a, is there a journey of forgiveness that perhaps we need to take? Well, the last myth I want to talk about tonight is number five here, and that is that we're no good and that sin will always win. Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Listen carefully, folks. I want to say this quite quickly. I think we can get into negative mode in our minds. This idea that we're, we're never going to conquer that sin, so just give up. You know, I, I ran a 10K yesterday, and boy, did I hate it. I just hated it right from the start. I got about six, uh, about four miles actually into it. And my brain was screaming, stop doing this. You are nearly 54 years of age. Lay down on the ground and order pizza immediately. (laughs) And there's a danger that we can kind of do that with sin. And listen carefully, we can end up with the gospel as a kind of sin management system where, you know, yeah, you mess up and you get forgiven, you mess up and you get forgiven, you mess up and you get forgiven. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that if you mess up, you can be forgiven. But there's also grace available for us to prevent us from marching or meandering into that sin in the first place. It's not just a message of forgiveness. It's a message of transformation that is available. Now, God never leads us into temptation in terms of sin. John Stott says probably the best translation of this is is deliver us from the evil one, from the tempter. Perhaps it's true that when we go through trials, that can be the time when we are most tempted to sin. But I want to ask this question of us tonight. Is there an area of our lives where we have surrendered to sin? We've just said, that's it, I'm addicted. I've run up the white flag of surrender. It's never going to change. That is a lie. It is a lie. And as Jesus invites us to pray that we will be delivered from the evil one, so he shows us the potential not only of being forgiven for sin, but not stumbling into that sin in the first place. Well, we're going to take some moments to pray together. So uh, let's do that right now as we reflect on how not to pray. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight and we, we thank you that when we complicate prayer, that Jesus, you make it really rather 
not simplistic, but, but quite accessible and, and simple. We can pray. Lord, we want to we come to you tonight and, and pray into two areas. First of all, perhaps, perhaps there's an area of our lives where we've, we've become sin managers, where we just fail and ask for forgiveness, fail and ask for forgiveness. We keep going around the same old stuff. And we thank you that you're a God who shows pity on us. Not only do you know that we are weak, but you also have strength available. I want us to bow our heads for a moment and on this occasion just close our eyes. I wonder how many of us would be honest enough to say, God, I need your pity. I want you to have mercy upon me because I know I've messed up and I come to this junction moment not only to ask for forgiveness but to ask for change. I don't want to be back here again the same with the same issue next week. I want to change and grow. Have mercy upon me. If you'd be bold enough to say that, would you slip your hand up, please, as a way of saying, I, I need that. Thank you. You can, you can put your hands down. Then secondly, I wonder how many of us, and I want to say this very gently and carefully, how many of us would say, I want to forgive. And I want to make that choice. Or maybe, I kind of don't want to forgive, but I'd like to be obedient to God and I'd like Him to take me on that journey of recovery and wholeness. God, show me, give me grace, teach me, heal me, that I might be able to come to a place of being able to forgive. If that's true, as our eyes are closed, as I'm... I'm with you in this desire to want to be able to forgive those who wound and hurt. Would you slip your hand up, please, as a way of saying that's, that's where I'm at. God, help me. You can put your hands down. So, Lord, we, our prayer is simple for our, ourselves, for our brothers and sisters tonight. Have mercy on us and help us to have mercy in Jesus name last weekend we you can sit up last weekend we 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 kind of prayed the Lord's Prayer as it appears in the NIV and uh, Dallas Willard, who's written a book called The Divine Conspiracy, great book. He's done a paraphrase of that prayer that I'd like us to share together. The words are coming up on the screen right now. So let's... So, Father, as we began this message by hearing the words of children, so simple, so innocent, we pray that this week we will, we will pray as your children. Grant us faith and trust, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. And uh, have a wonderful weekend. Prayer team are here, and I think the term is Go Eagles, or something like that. So, have a great weekend. God bless you guys.